Welcome to the Organic MD Podcast with Dr. Damon Miller and me, Carlisle Coash. Welcome back to our ongoing conversation about all of these interesting things that we're talking about. How are you doing today, Dr. Miller? Well, I'm I'm doing pretty well today. We're uh, still looking, you know, this we're recording this at the time of the great fires in Northern California, and it's still uh, feel, you know, it's bad enough that we're stuck here with all of the social distancing and everything because of the um, endem- pandemic, but now it's almost dangerous to go walk outside. It's getting better. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so it's, it's a good time. It's a good day to record a podcast. That's what I'm saying. There you go. So uh, today we're going to do part five of the eight part series. Uh, we're talking about the eight things your doctor doesn't tell you uh, when you're diagnosed with one of these retinal diseases like macular degeneration or Stargardt or retinitis pigmentosa. And the topic for today is about toxicity, uh, something that I wrestle with with people in my office all the time. Um, and we often win. We wrestle and we win. But but it is uh, toxicity. We're bringing it up because it isn't it isn't the cause of your eye disease, but it's an obstacle to getting better. In fact, it's an obstacle to getting better no matter what kind of health problem you're, or health challenge you're working with. Toxicity gets in the way and it can just stop you from making any progress at all, no matter what you're doing. And so it has to be addressed. And, you know, one of the things that uh, often I hear, you know, people go, well, how do you know I'm toxic? Do we need to do some testing? What are you going to do? And I just want to tell a little story to kind of address that. Back in the, uh, oh, it was about it was about 2000, but then the setup for this study was a few years before that, but the results were released in 2000. There was a, a big study done, and um, one, of the, one of the centers was Johns Hopkins University out in the East Coast, but they, um, they had done, just taken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who, as best as they could tell, were healthy, and then done this over-the-top workup to see what the levels of toxins were in their body. So they took samples of everything they could get their hands on, you know, all kinds of body fluids, stool, urine, spit. They did skin biopsies. They did just hair. They tried to get as much material as they could, and then they assayed that for a list of about 150 toxins. And what they found was that everyone had everything they were looking for in dangerously large amounts, everyone. And so that was kind of interesting. And that sparked a lot of interest in toxicity when they published these results. And and I'm Dr. assuming that these are like a broad spectrum of people, maybe some people who are, say, unhealthy, but also people who were healthy or you wouldn't necessarily think would have those. No, they were mostly in that study looking at healthy people. They were trying to. Oh, I see. They were there because you could say, well, a lot of those people, of course, they were toxic. Look, they were sick. No, they were looking at vibrant, healthy people as best as they could tell at the beginning of the study. And the um, so that sparked a lot of interest from doctors. Doctors were going, well, I want to know if my clients are full of toxins. And so it sparked this whole little mini industry that went on for a number of years. Um, Johns Hopkins collaborating with some other centers. They put together this elaborate test kit. They set up a lab. They put together this elaborate test kit. You were a doctor. You could 
send away, they'd send you this box with all these tubes and vials and envelopes to gather all this stuff from your clients and send it all back to them. And for the low, low price of $4,000, they would uh, send you, you know, a 13 page printout showing what they found about your client. And I say it was a, a short lived industry because it didn't take very long for doctors to kind of figure out every single test I send in comes back completely positive. Everybody's over the top. Everybody's full of toxins. And so why bother with the $4,000? I was, I know if they're, if they're alive and walking in to see me, they're toxic. And so that, that those labs kind of fell apart and closed up. But I just mentioned that because we really don't do much in the way of uh, toxic testing anymore. Um, there are still some doctors who do. And what's interesting is often the kind of testing that they do is not very good. For instance, they'll be looking for heavy metals and they'll do a, a urine test or a hair test. That's kind of the standard to see if they find heavy metals like lead and mercury and cadmium and strontium, you know, things like that. And what's interesting is that the, when you have, so we know you're full of toxins, the issue when you're trying to do something about it, when you're trying to address those toxins is the fact that for many people, the problem isn't that they've been exposed to the toxins is that their body is kind of crippled and can't get rid of them. And there's, uh, that's a long conversation. We do a course on do it yourself detox, talk about that more there, but, but just let's say that you have to, the first piece of work in helping someone to detox is to mobilize the toxins. You have to kind of shake them loose from where they're stuck in your body and keep the person from being sick while they're floating around until you can figure out a way to get them out of the body, get them excreted. And that stuckness is for a good reason. The body, if it can't deal with something, it knows better than to just let it float around freely. So it buries it in your solid organs and your bones and your tissues and your brain and your spinal cord and your eyes. And um, so at least now it's not floating around poisoning you. It's just poisoning where it's landed. And so you've got to get things mobilized. But the um, when you look at something like going back to the heavy metals, you look at a hair analysis or a urine analysis, those are reflecting what's been excreted by the body. The body can excrete heavy metals in the urine. The body can excrete heavy metals by putting them in the hair and the skin. But if the excretion isn't working because all this stuff is stuck, then you can be full of lead or full of mercury and you won't find anything in the hair or in the urine. And so sometimes you can do a little bit of a workaround. You can give somebody, somebody an agent that mobilizes, say, lead and mercury and then repeat the urine test. And often you see a big spike and that tells you two things. That tells you, yeah, they're really there. But it also tells you that um, this agent that you gave might be something that would be useful to mobilize this stuff for the person. Um, and usually the people doing that kind of testing, they're doing it because their intention is to do intravenous chelation. That's chelation is the name for the process of getting metals out of someone or out of a person or out of farmland or anything else. It's chelating, chelating agents are agents that bind up metals so that they can be um, either sequestered or removed. And so if you're going to do intravenous chelation, which is a very profitable thing to do if you're a doctor, um, you need proof that that 
risky technique is justified. So you you go out of your way to get some sort of data on paper that says, yeah, it was they, they really had these metals. That's why we did this. And we're sorry that it damaged you, um, but you needed it. And um, and I'm, I'm saying this in a kind of negative way because the, the people who've been doing this forever, everybody's using oral stuff. You don't need intravenous chelation to get the metals out of your body. Um, and that kind of takes us to another part of this discussion of toxicity, which is, um, you know, toxicity is something that you're going to be dealing with for the rest of your life. You know, we live in a very toxic world. No matter how hard you try, you're going to be taking this stuff in. And also some of these things that you've already acquired take years and years and years to finally clear. So it takes some pretty good habits of detoxification, you know, and, uh, you know, Carlisle, you, you know a lot about developing habits, good habits, getting rid of bad habits and things like that. I know. I mean, <laughs> some days are better than others, but, yeah. um, but I'm just I remembering think... what you said about your dad, you know, that the habits mm. he had to change, um, and, and the kind of, you know, that was a very motivating story. Oh, well, I mean, I think that part of it for him was, a, a clear understanding that if I have this issue, so for him, uh, if you don't, if you didn't hear the other podcasts, you know, he was supposed to get, uh, he had gallbladder issues and because he ate very heavy foods and very rich foods and, but he also hated surgery. And so he uh, didn't want to have his gallbladder removed. He wanted to make a change. That was his, the option he was interested in. And when he did that, changed his diet, uh, took lecithin, took other things like supplements uh, to help him kind of relate to it. He lost a lot of weight. And he also knew that that was something he had to do for the rest of his life. So he did, you know, uh, I, I, I never, I mean, he obviously didn't do some of that in the first part of my life, but this was, I think I was maybe eight or nine years old when, when he did some of this. And so for the majority of my life and experience with him, he took lecithin and he took, you know, barley green and, he, you know, he took like, it's what it used to be called back, you know, early days of health food. It was barley green. Now it's, you know, now it's uh, other, it, they keep changing. Yeah, chlorella know, and things like that. Chlor yeah. So it has different names, but that was the one he used. And he, he actually worked well setting a routine. So he set that routine up for him and he, for himself and he kept it going because he knew if I don't, it's just going to come back. I can't like, I can do this change and feel better. But then in two years, if I start eating the same thing again and I stop doing the things that helped me get to this place, I'm going to be back in the same place again. It's not like, you're, you're all just cleared and recovered for the rest of your life. Sometimes, yes, maybe, but, um, you know, I think it's different. Like if you had a broken arm or something and it's healed, well, then it's healed. Like it's your arm isn't necessarily necessarily going to keep breaking. But I think when it's toxins and these other kind of health issues, you have to make these changes that last for the rest of your life. And that's okay. It's not a big deal. I think we want that quick solution and then never have to think about it again. But the world's not getting less toxic. Um, all you got to do is look at the news to know the world isn't getting less toxic. So 
So that means you have to do something to balance that. Same, you know, we when we talk about the COVID stuff or even a flu season, do things that on an ongoing basis keeps your resilience high so that you're likely always going to get exposed to something, to a flu bug or to or COVID even. I mean, even if you do precautions, you might still get exposed to something. But if you're keeping those things in your system that we've talked about, like vitamin C and D3 and other things that just keep your immunity pretty boosted, then when you are exposed, it, it doesn't have the same effect. I heard someone refer to this as uh, fragility, that you're trying to avoid a state of fragility where you're just vulnerable to whatever comes in front mm. of you. Yeah. Which I, I thought that was a good word. And, and you're talking here about habits. We're going to down the road do a podcast on habits. I've been looking at the work of someone that I've known for years that uh, has done a whole, uh, whole bunch of writing on habits, which I think is very inspiring. We'll, we'll get to that probably not for a month or two, but. So, I mean, the, so I, I just was the, in my experience in my life when, oh, I'm not feeling, oh, I'm not feeling well, or I, you know, I get a cold or I, I'm really run down. And if I quickly just reflect, oh, you know what? I haven't been doing the stuff I usually do. Like the last couple of weeks, I forgot to, I've been blowing off, you know, not taking my vitamin C and not doing my D3 and, you know, making sure I'm my diet's pretty good, you know, making sure I'm getting at least some juices and some, you know, some greens, you know, some smoothies, like some healthy things in the system, because then I'm making my body have to do so much more work, right. To just kind of maintain my, I'm not giving it the resources it needs. Um, and so right. my, I might as well do that because do I want to have a cold? No. Do I want to feel run down and crappy feeling? No. Uh, so, but I think we, we lose track of that or we don't have that routine in our mind or think, oh, I'm fine. It's summer. I, I'm not going to get sick in summer. So the worst colds I've gotten has been in the summer. <laughs> you know? Is that like the flu bug is like, oh yeah, I'm going to Hawaii. Don't worry about me. I'm not going to bug you at all. No, it's still around. Maybe not as prevalent like in cold winter or cold months, but we, that's the thing that we, I think we forget about. Yeah. Well, and the, uh, you know, these things that we do to stay healthy. Um, I just want to say, you know, when I, when I left the kind of hospital, when I left the hospital based practice I was in and stepped into integrative medicine, you know, trying to do things that are, you know, doing techniques that address the the root of the problem more than the branch, not just treating symptoms with drugs. You know, that was a long time ago, but, but even then when I did that, there was a lot of uh, skeptical medical mind in me that do, are these things really useful? Do they really work? Is it worth people taking the effort to do this? And, um, and what's nice is that over, you know, a couple of decades now longer that just, you know, having people who are willing to engage do the very things you're just talking about now, some simple supplements, taking care of their health and things like that, you know, they, they report back, wow, you know, I feel so much better. I have so much more energy. My sleep is better. I haven't had a cold in years. I used to get bad colds three and four times a year or flus. And, you know, so I get the feedback that 
these things actually do work in, in a broad range of people. But just to go on though with the toxicity, um, you know, so you, you got to make the, the 10 year commitment at least for the detoxification work. And then when you're done with 10 years, we'll talk again. But the, uh, um, the other thing, just in terms of specifically, we're talking here about eye disease. So one of the things we found this general work that really is important for everyone in terms of avoiding taking toxins into your system and doing work, some simple work, work to clean up your body, get things moving out, clean up your environment a little bit. But um, the microcurrent stimulation, which is part of the work we do with the retinal disease, that uh, it's kind of interesting. That's been seen to improve detoxification specifically in the areas you treat. So if you're treating your eyes with microcurrent stimulation uh, day after day, week after week, you get a sort of localized detoxification in those tissues. And we've had similar effects doing things with people with Parkinson's. Um, there's a clear connection between toxicity and Parkinson's disease. Um, and then, you know, the other things you do, one of the, one of the simplest things you could do, and, and I know this is not a popular thing, but to eat organic food. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's written about the value of eating an organic diet. And, and a lot of it is, um, you know, they say, well, you know, we, we took, you know, all these organic foods and we looked at the nutritional value of them compared to things grown non-organically and they're almost equivalent. They can be, yeah. There's, there's still nutrition in non-organic food. But then when you read those articles, usually as a sentence at the very end of the article or a couple of sentences, they will tell you that the, the one thing you miss by eating an organic diet is that your urine's not full of agricultural chemicals, which happen to be known toxins. So, um, you know, and- What a notion. What a notion, yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's, to me, I, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, like what are, what, where our brains want to be convinced of, of something like that. Like, oh, you see, it's all a hoax, organic food. It's just the same nutrients. Well, what, what do you think organic means? It doesn't mean that it's like Superman food. It's, it's not like normal lettuce, super lettuce. It's, for the most part, it means that it wasn't infused with a lot of toxin and a lot of chemicals like the other one is. So it's still lettuce, but it just means that you're ingesting less junk that's been sprayed on it and processed through it. Yeah. And there, there are other benefits and, to organic food. I know. I know. And, I know. and one of the best sources of organic food yeah. is just, you know, grow some food in your backyard. Um, you know where it came from. So. True. Yeah. I mean, you could spray it with chemicals. Well, yeah. So. If, if you're, that, yeah, the, there are shelves full of it down at the hardware store. So you could if you wanted to. Um, and then just the last thing I just want to, I'm going to let you talk on this because you're really, um, um, you know, you're, you're really sort of the, the expert in this, just from the work you've done, you know, all the work you've done. But um, the final thing that really needs to be addressed, and it's the hardest one to address is the emotional toxicity, the ways that we you know, kind of cling, it's almost, we have a habit of clinging to negative things. You know, I could go on and on, but um, 
if you would just maybe say something about what you've seen about how someone might address emotional toxicity. I mean, you can't, you, bad things happen in life, troublesome things happen, difficult things happen. You can't dodge that. You can't avoid that. But there are ways to live your life and things you can do that keep the things that happen in life from becoming really corrosive. I mean, to some extent, it's very much connected to being able to grieve and move through things. I, I think that's one of the places that's most underestimated <clears throat> is that processing of what it means to be in a life that, cha that change is happening all the time. So we may not want to acknowledge that change is happening, but change is happening all the time. Like to us, to everything around us, it's constantly changing. There is, you know, maybe a day-to-day -day through line that, that feels like it's consistent, but things are always changing. And what I certainly saw working in hospice, but also just in my family, uh, in supporting other friends of mine and their family, is like when you have things that aren't resolved or worked on, whether it's trauma and or grief, um, these things that then stay stagnant and they become poison. Yeah. Um, you know, and sure, I've certainly had people in my family who might have uh, mental health issues that might drive some of their activity and toxicity, but there are others that created a lot of turmoil and agitation for themselves and others because they weren't working on these core things. They had grief, they had a trauma, they had something going on, they don't let it go. And just like the body, as you were saying earlier, takes a toxin sometimes and stores it somewhere, right? Because it's not able to process it. The same happens with unworked on emotions and grief. The emotional body, okay, you're not dealing with it, so I have to do something with this. And it, maybe it gets held in a certain part of the body or it builds into a pattern or a way of, um, of dealing with things. This is why, you know, uh, if I, th I mean, I don't have, uh, there aren't statistics, but I think if you were to do a lot of interviews with people who are really struggling with alcohol and drugs and food and whatever, you know, an addiction that's, you know, out of control, uh, so much of the time, a root of it is something unresolved or not worked on or a grief that's not been worked on or trauma that's not been worked on and kind of for good or for ill, those kind of things like, oh, you know what? That drink made me feel better, right? Because right. it just dulled everything. I can't, I don't have the space to deal with this thing or I don't know how to deal with this thing. I don't want to talk about it. Or maybe I'm in a family system, for example, that doesn't know how to talk about it. Everything gets shut down. Well, hey, you know what? That drink, that dulled the pain a bit. Oh, well, I'm just going to keep doing that. That's easy. But then that action destroys you. Um, and actually exacerbates the, the trauma and the, and the behavior becomes worse and worse and you act out more and more. And it's, you have to take it as seriously as cancer, as seriously as a deadly chemical that you've ingested. 
Um, it might be slower acting, but I've just seen over and over again uh, what happens when you don't deal with it. And it's not like you deal with it and it's done, maybe uh, to some extent, but this is you work on for your whole life because especially if it's connected to a trauma or a loss, um, there may be things you don't understand about the impact of that loss until you're in a place that triggers that understanding. So, you know, as, as an example, there were things from my mother's death that I didn't understand the impact of her not being here until that was happening. Like when I got married, you know, as an example, right. you know, like I would want, I, I wish my mom was there to like be part of that unit that's supporting my, my getting married, but she was dead quite some time when that right. happened. So, you know, and it's when you're in it and you're like, Oh, I need, I need to rely on this person. Oh, this person's not here. So that brings up that grief again. And I have to work through that and relate to that. And that's fine because if I've done the work for myself and I've built that commitment to work on it, it may not be perfect, but at least I'm willing to work on it and hopefully have people in my life that can reflect that back to me and go, Hey, it feels like something's going on. Is there something that maybe is coming up about this current situation that's connected to that past loss or trauma? Part of that honesty is to be able to go, oh, I don't know. Let me look at it. Like, let me explore that because I know I might be affected and it might be causing choices that I'm making now. Um, you know, I've known people who say weren't drinkers their whole life, but there was that thing that they didn't understand about a loss. And then something triggers that. And then they start drinking to kind of oh, well, it can't be that. That happened 20 years ago. So why wouldn't it be active right here, right? right. It's, so it's like, no, it can be active here because life has a tendency sometimes to bring situations up again that we can feel triggered about um, and reflect something that maybe we don't understand about that loss. And that's okay. It's not, we're not a failure in our experience. Like we're not bad grievers or bad people because oh, I'm feeling this about my mom, even though she's been dead 15 years um, and I have all these emotions coming up. I'm not stupid or broken for having those feelings. I'm, I'm human. I'm a changing being. Um, and so then that's that piece of, if I don't do that, it can, we can hold that in the body. I, I know people have become ill all you know, the time. like an illness that they're, that they're having is directly connected to that. You've experienced this, Damon, where, you know, someone comes in, I have this, 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 and this going on. And before you even, because what the West is great at doing, right, is, oh, well, that's this, this, and this. You have this disease, this disease, this disease. We're going to do this, this, this to it and pound it into a submission. And we've triumphed the disease. And... I, what I've always appreciated about your approach, and actually this is an approach that you would find in Eastern medicine, would be to ask before anything, I'm curious, can I ask some questions? Mm -hmm. Like, can I hear a bit about your story, about the story of what this might be? And how often do you have someone go, oh yes, this and this and this, <laughs> like start telling the story and you're like, well, I have a feeling that maybe some of it is 
this thing you're experiencing now might be connected to that. And they suddenly, oh, you know what? I started talking about that and re like exploring that and pulling that stuff out that I don't talk about at all. And the other thing, the symptoms that are happening with this other issue are starting to calm and resolve. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's I, remarkable. You know, it's not. It, whereas the, the, and I'm sorry to keep, no, kind no. Of, I'm, I know I'm wrong, but, but it's like, so this, cause I see this so, I've seen this so many times, especially working in hospice or working, running bereavement groups. And a person is having genuine, real emotions about a loss that they've experienced. It's overwhelming. They go to a therapist and they're immediately put on Zoloft or whatever. And it just shuts that whole process down. And because that's the easy thing, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Just give me something. And our system is all too happy to just give that person something. And our medical system. Yeah. Be, yes. The medical system. And, and the thing is, is, is like, okay. Now if it was, if there's, if they're crippled by it, sure. Having some, uh, sometimes a, a medication can help at least bring some balance, but then there really has to be some work and grief, grieving and things happening around that. And I don't see that, I don't see that happen. And then I've had so many people in bereavement groups that come into a group. It's five years since the loss happened. When that loss happened, they got on Zoloft, they got on whatever, and yes, they felt better. And so they didn't do any other work. And then three years later, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I think I'm going to go off Zoloft and crash because all of that stuff is still there. It's not like it disappeared. And wait, I got to deal with all this. I thought I dealt with it by taking this pill. No, the pill just masks or shuts down the way alcohol does, the way something else does. It just it deadens it or it smooths it over, but it's still there. And if we, if you've been able to do that work, maybe in conjunction with the medication or work on those things together, um, then you'd be in a different place, but we don't. Yeah. Do well, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm not I'm, always, I mean, we do, some people do, I'm not saying, no, and, not, I, and I say that we don't do that. Of course, people, there are therapists and practitioners out there that do support people. But I, as I've said, the number of times you've shared with me, Damon, stories where you pull a thread of a story about something and it's like, well, no, no wonder this, you have this symptom or these things happening. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. But we have to put it out like that, right? We have to sometimes put the, that story out, lay it out on the table and look at it, not from a place of you're a bad person for having this, but huh? Wow. You know what? I hadn't put those things together, right? right? And it's not—it's not hard work. I mean, you know, I—I I wanted to spend the time talking about the emotional toxicity that we've been doing now because it is so critical. You know, the Western medicine kind of makes lip service in addressing the mind-body connection, but modern medicine doesn't really know anything to do with that. So you need—you need to understand that number one, it's important, it's real. And that there are things you can do and you don't have to do it perfectly. You know, the whole, the whole exactly. point with this and with the physical detoxification too, is that the work you spend doing something is hugely, hugely helpful. So, but it takes time. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. So if, if the general, and this isn't every, you know, system, but for the most part, 
for healthcare here, you got, if I'm a physician, I have this little window with somebody, you know, it's a 15 minute or a 20 minute and, and, and also just in my experience of sitting around a lot of tables with other practitioners in the hospital, um, there are a lot of physicians who don't, I, I don't want to talk. I, I want to go and do my specialty of what I do. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to spend 40 minutes because it may take that long. It may take an hour. I mean, this is, I, I worked as a chaplain. And so I, that I got permission like to spend that time. Yeah. If someone, if I, if I spent two hours with a family and they're like, why did you spend two hours? It's like, um, because that's what was required to actually get to where we need to go. They have to be able to trust me or, or what have you to get into something so that we can work through it. It can't be prescribed. If you tell me I, I have to do everything in a half an hour or in 20 minutes, this is partially why I left right. the work is because that became more and more standardized. You know, all your visits, you can't be more than half an hour or 45 minutes with yeah. somebody. Well, that's why I, well, good luck. That's why I stepped out of the hospital <laughs> model, you know, in my, in my yeah. office, I, I can spend what time I want to yeah. spend with people. You know, you need to do five visits a day or whatever, you know, whatever that is so that you look productive. Well, but it, what's the productive, right? You know, I mean, we can, I can go on about that, but, uh, this does take some time. You have to put some effort, a little bit of energy to willing to kind of do that. But I think once you do, and this is, uh, again, tying back in that sort of maintenance thing for long term, right. right? So it may take a little bit of work up front to kind of, to kind of dig in and see what's there. But then once you do, you have a lot of resources so that when stuff comes up, oh, I've done a lot of the work already. So I know how to work with this thing as here's this new thing or this new feeling or experience or talk, you know, emotional toxin. That's like, yeah, uh, here. Oh, I got some tools already. Cause I did the work so I can resolve it relatively quickly and I can move forward, you know? Um, but we have to be able to do yeah, that. And there's, and there's and, a, um, there's a payoff too, that people don't, you don't really get it until you've done it, but when you're not drowning in grief and, you know, a need for forgiveness and anger and all this stuff, you know, there's, there's a pretty immediate payoff in just terms of feeling better, but I'm just, I'm going to just say here that you're making me aware, you know, one of the things I want to say is that I'm sure there are questions people have about the physical toxicity. Okay. It's great. I have to mobilize the toxins and get them out. How do I do that? Uh, I have to keep myself healthier when living in a toxic world. So we do have this course and you'll, you'll get notified if you just kind of keep uh, in touch with us in touch with us here. Sorry, the dogs were barking. Um, you'll get notified when we do our detoxify your body, detoxify your home course. And I realize we also need a course in, they're still yeah, going. they are, um, they do that. But we also need a course, uh, they're just kind of agreeing with me here. We need a course that doesn't exist yet. And you and I need to do this about some do it yourself things for uh, emotional health, because like you say, it takes time the medical system you're in, the, the best medicine that somebody else will pay for isn't going to offer you anything for that. So we'll, we'll kind of start noodling that, um, do a workshop on that. Okay. Well, I'm going to call it quits here. Um, okay. And again, I just uh, really 
urge you all to contact us if you have questions. Let us know what kind of topics you'd like to see in the future. Uh, subscribe and like our podcast. That uh, helps you see what we're doing in the future, and it also helps us get the word out to more people. Um, yeah. So, wow, this was huge. Thank you. Um, there's so much, yeah, so much you. we can say about this, and I've got more, but we'll we'll save that for for the future. So, I just really appreciate you. Thank you. Right back okay. at you. <laughs> well, thanks for joining everybody and uh, check back in for part six, which is coming up soon. Thank you. Thank you.